Writing and reading is a strange thing to do. Not just because it is out of place in a culture based on monetary growth, but also partly because it mirrors something strange about existence and habit, our unique ways of repeating patterns of change. For me, writing is a lot like walking, a kind of flaneur, an activity that fulfills itself by expressing a radical openness to what shows up. But the strangest part is sharing, since most of most of it is likely to not resonate at all and fall on deaf ears. Perhaps that's why it's been so long since I sent one of these. It can feel like sharing a generous slice of my own journey through alienation and philosophic rumination, and therefore somewhat confronting. I could say writing is about fulfilling a need, but like the need we sometimes have for silence, it is not something that can be measured. My sense is that the need for silence is something deep that we feel um, and that we don't really understand. It's an invitation from our depths to contemplate. Writing can be contemplative, but it's also akin to possession. And sometimes the shadows of grand and archaic ideas summon themselves from the depths. Peter Sloterdijk uh, describes writing as an archetype of ability. Perhaps we could also describe thought as the archetype of action and conceive of the relationship in terms of refraction rather than causality. Anyway, let's see what there is to explore in this piece. Hope you are all well and looking after your imaginations. Rolling dice and spinning the wheel. In the Theravada Buddhist tradition, we see a framing of meditation practice as the ending of rebirth. The world and self are to be negated or transcended to break the wheel of samsara, the endless unsatisfactoriness of arising and passing of being in the world. In the Mahayana conversion, there is what is known as the vow of the Bodhisattva, in which a yogi chooses to stay on the wheel of samsara with the intention of cultivating boundless compassion for the awakening of all beings. It is a vow because when undertaken, one chooses to make choices based on the goodness of compassion which itself is an immeasurable and therefore transcendent ethic. In this turn, the Mahayana frames awakening as an understanding that samsara and nirvana are not different, but also not one. The Bodhisattva vision, which to me is thoroughly tantric, although most would see tantra as specific to the third turn of the Dharma with Vajrayana, um, the Bodhisattva vision to me offers a method of relating to the self-sense that brings confidence and courage, which are always tricky areas for meditators. If we have an idea that the goal of meditation is to get rid of the self, which is more common than you might think, we might well ask, isn't confidence and courage just ego? In a way, we all choose our character in relation to the suffering of the world. Our reason is aspirational, 
and it co-evolves with the changing conditions of the world. Ideally, our aspiration enables ability, and if we aspire to compassion, we are able to do compassion. The challenge is, of course, alignment of aspiration, desire and wisdom. I should probably write a book on this very topic, the relationship of contemplation and temptation. But the winds are blowing hard and fast these days. In the West, we have the Neoplatonic tradition, which lasted for about 800 years after Plato's academy, before philosophy was criminalised by the Roman Christian boneheads, in which the practice of contemplation involved detaching from the sensible world and the passions of the body to become more in touch with the pure intellect, that which knows by reason and intelligibility, which had a much more expansive meaning than it does now, those words reason and intelligibility. When the intellect is purified through the cultivation of virtue, it is capable of reflecting the Absolute One. As in the Dharma, this purification is not about being reborn as a better person, but an unbirth or a breaking of the cyclical duality that obscures the One. Intellect is then rooted in all things, and daily life with its arising and passing of thoughts and appearances intuits the instant as not separate from divine illumination. The present moment is wedded to the weird as its eventual fate. Unlike most contemporary approaches to meditation, the Neoplatonic tradition emphasised intellectual study as inseparable from contemplative practice. Hence why folk like Damascius, one of the late Neoplatonists, prioritised the purification of the intellect to prepare for engagement with esoteric ideas. To me, a purified intellect is one that is relatively free from literalism and objectification, which are like two sides of the same coin. This means that intellect is then subservient to soul. With proper alignment, it is easier to see the interdependency at play, that, for example, stretching the intellect through dedicated study expands and enhances the capacity to sense the body as a field of energy. This allows for a kind of alchemy of desire in which the greed or pathos that can often come with intellectual study is allowed to become eros, which in turn gives support to engaging with religious and esoteric history imaginally. A more practical point for exploring this in meditation practice is to start by simply directing the intention towards cultivating sensitivity and receptiveness for qualities of well-being and establishing a compass for compassion. It is common to hear that the genuinely mystical cannot be known by intellect. But this is just because the intellect is bound up with the standpoint of divisive reason, to which anything mystical is simply mystifying gobbledygook. This standpoint of divisive reason is a typical mode of intellect in which the world and ourselves are divided into little pieces in the infinite game of disintegrating and reassembling bits. This movement of dividing experience into categories of its that can be represented as objects of cognition eventually opens into an irreconcilable abyss of nihility. 
that overshadows the grandiosity surrounding popular notions of human intelligence. Since this standpoint is so prevalent, it is perhaps useful to employ Henry Corbin's idea of the imaginal as distinct from the imagination. Whereas imagination is concerned with interpretation and representation, the imaginal integrates perceptual appearances into a place or realm, hence the phrase of Henry Corbin, the mundus imaginalis, the world of the imaginal. With careful alignment, seemingly complex metaphysics can offer simple ways of reframing aspects of perception that have become rigidified through habit. For example, by introducing the idea of presence as an emanation of a divine light and engaging with it in the somatic perception, the moments of life, and in particular the persons of our life, are sensed as rooted in another dimension, in the imaginal realm. By relaxing the clinging to appearances of self and other, usually felt as simply a contraction in the space of awareness, energy and creativity can empower the imaginal sensor. It is easy to see energy and creativity as always being of value in life, but in order to kindle the fires of the imaginal, it is probably necessary to focus and extend the very value of energy or creativity to a higher principle in service of disclosing or discovering, meaning to remove a cover, beauty's desire for its own goodness to be seen. This is offered here briefly as a possible direction to the perennial problem of the one in relation to the many. It pains me to so briefly outline an idea that requires lengthy discussion, but there is so much to discover. Coming home to Dukkha. Through insight born of contemplation, a person can come to see that attachment to goals and fixed outcomes brings suffering. Whenever there is a clear comprehension of the causes of suffering, naturally what follows is a letting go, a renunciation of what does not serve. This is how one can discern a genuine insight from the plethora of delusions or impurities that surround it degree to which the insight brings a relaxation of clinging and grasping. But naturally, ultimately speaking, there is no position the self can take. This is another way of saying that letting go is also based on a kind of delusion. With a thoroughness and integrity of exploration, one also comes to see that there is nothing to let go of, and therefore no letting go. In Dharma language, we say that clinging is empty. It is something that fabricates perceptions, but is itself empty much like fire, defined by its activity of burning, cannot burn itself. And this very impossibility gives it the self-identity it has. See uh, Kaichi Nishitani's book, Religion and Nothingness, for more on the emptiness of clinging. Where does this leave one? In Zen there is a saying, easy to die, much harder to come back to life. At one level, a person makes decisions and acts in the world by believing in the stable reality of things. Indeed, we could say that this belief in the reality of things enables being, just as attachment enables connection. 
This example is particularly important as it concerns our relationships to other people. At one extreme, attachment brings suffering, but it's also not possible to live without it. The end of suffering comes through the full understanding of suffering. And this is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. Since time is also empty, the full understanding of suffering can happen at any moment, anywhere. So although emptiness is about renunciation, giving up, letting go, the experience of insight and understanding thereof opens up possibility, as well as a lot of ontological questions, that is, about the nature of reality. Here basic principles become helpful guides, uh, not dogmatic assertions. An example of such a basic principle is that through meditation, perception becomes malleable. That it is possible to look in many possible ways. Or more precisely, in Dharma teachers, teacher Robert Bayer's language, the way in which life appears to us depends on the way of looking. This can sound relatively abstract when there is an insufficient degree of equanimity, another byproduct of insight, that allows the mind to be not so caught up in the appearances of life. When there is steadiness in the soul, interest naturally goes to questions like, why do things appear the way they do? As I described in the last letter, the relationship to doing and effort can be a challenging area for a human being. The implication of what I've just described is that practicing looking in different ways is an infinite source of joy and inspiration because it is so immediate, empowering and playful. Part of what this involves is thinking in ways different to objective, evaluative mode described above. The habitual dominance of this style is why so many meditators associate thinking as constricting, always objectifying and measuring, which tends to come with fear-based emotional effect. When we are identified with patterns of cognition that objectify, it is hard to see how absurd they usually are. Existentialism, based on the much older tradition of Stoicism, emphasized radical, reflexive honesty as a way of disclosing the liberating function of truth which was not necessarily conceived as that which is independent from emotional affect, which is how truth is most often conceived. Modern psychologies and psychotherapeutic methods often work by cultivating awareness of rudimentary thought patterns and finding ways of addressing the underlying needs. This can help a person to let go of these patterns through a kind of reasoning, but it does not uproot the Cartesian object-based dualism that Western civilization runs on, ways of relating to the world from the standpoint of divisive reasoning, which is perhaps why Heraclitus famously proclaimed war is the father of all things. Perhaps as a Promethean forewarning for a technocratic civilization, the father of scientism, the separate parental figure overseeing the habit of objectification, when it comes to theology, the parable or cone functions as the medium of esoteric ideas, offering a path out of the words by first getting lost in them. But, and this is important, their purpose is not to end in a state of confusion, at least not in the way we normally think of it. 
Sages throughout the ages have used stories in the form of parables to show that we are lost and confused most of the time without knowing. In Zen, the purpose of Zazen is to rouse the great doubt, and a student is often advised to sit with the eyes open to avoid drifting in emptiness, a kind of false awakening. Similarly, in the Platonic traditions, we get the notion of aporia, aporia, fundamental doubt, which is later developed by the great Nicholas of Cusa in his notion of doctor ignorantia, or learned ignorance. To circle the self, ring around a rosies, a pocket full of posies. Plato's Republic, one of the foundational pieces of Western literature and thought, is usually interpreted as a description of some ideal political state, a utopia. This suits the sensibilities of secular modernity, but scholars such as Pierre Grimes have challenged this by calling attention to how fundamental the notion of self is to Greek antiquity. He suggests that a better reading of Plato's Republic is as a description of the ideal state of the soul, a mystical contemplation on the ideal conditions for the soul to reflect the divine light of being. To me, this becomes much more explicit in the Neoplatonists such as Plotinus, in a way that is similar to Nagarjuna's improvement on the Buddhist teaching of Prajnaparamita, the principle of dependent arising, which is emptiness. For me, this idea of the soul as a state comes alive in relation to other beings whom I love. With intimacy born of friendship, a space opens, and with it, a pathos of distance, as Nietzsche described. With this, love and beauty become truth-disclosing, opening a sense that their face, their persona, is a map of a topos, a karmic landscape where many different lineages come together. Sensing a person this way allows for beauty to come in because it is not blocked by object-based thinking or labelling, which can only reduce phenomena to objects or parts. When I am able to see a person this way, it is if the places that this person has lived in, where they have fallen in love with in life and where they have grieved, where they have experienced true solitude, become available to me through the imaginal middle way. Sensing the soul as a place or state is still a view of self and therefore not the self, but it is a view of that gently and artfully fabricates releasing those rigid energies of literalism, since, according to the Logos of emptiness, the self always arises interdependently with the sense of other and of world. This way of looking also enchants the cosmos. When I can sense this way, I do not just see the person against the background of nothingness. Rather, there is a correspondence between the beauty of this being and the beauty of the cosmos. To put it in Neoplatonic terms, this being is an expression of the One, an emanation of the divine light of being, of which all things are. And it is the Logos that recognizes and receives this divine illumination. As the great Christian mystic Meister Eckhart put it, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. With this mutually interpenetrating gaze, 
the duality of nature and culture softens, becoming more fully imaginal, mutually disclosing the beauty of personification. That the face of a person is a cultural mask through which the divinity of nature can be comprehended by the soul. It is the living Logos, embodied in the face of a person, what mythologist Joseph Campbell called masks of God. It is an affirmation of the compassion expressed in the Bodhisattva vow, choosing to live the drama of life out of love for all beings, an expression of karma as the freedom of spontaneity in in attachment. As Nishitani put it, the meeting of two or more karmic ancestral lineages is an imaginal perception, in between knowing and believing. And as I've said many times, the imaginal is a crucial avenue of healing in our world, what is known as Tikkum Olam in mystical Judaism. The move I have described here is from typology towards topology. It is playing with conceiving selves as agoria, an assembly or multiplicity that refuses to make itself explicit in definitive labels, thereby retaining a suggestive and evocative aura of boundless infinity. Typology, which seems to dominate and captivate the interests of pop psychology enthusiasts, typified by the Enneagram or the Gene Keys, are sophisticated ways of identifying a person through labels. They claim to aid self-awareness, but inevitably also do the opposite by disguising the self. Seeing the self clearly is simply seeing that the self is empty, that is, beyond any and all labels. This is nothing other than compassion. The word reveal feels particularly useful as it implies a reversal or a moving away from constructing a self-image with labels. But one has to be careful here not to take label the labels as bad or whatever. It is rather about the literalism and lack of imagination that often goes with them. That is why labels can also be playful and light when not taken literally. I think it is easy to feel when a person is looking with flat labels. No genuine seeing takes place, only an exchange of labels, mirroring the limits of intellect. The opposite, a sense of being genuinely seen by another, is close to a miracle, a genuine gift. This brings me close to my current limits of understanding and I sense that there is much more to say about literalism realism, so it is time to stop. Like all human things subject to habit, we get so used to certain ways of seeing that they remain unquestioned and become a place where inertia festers. When believed in, labels protect and defend opinions, inflicting violence on the soul. A transformational encounter is then impossible. Dialogue, as a revelatory encounter between persons and things, demonstrates that seeing is a participatory activity, a darani, to be cultivated as an art. Be well, fellow shape-shifting, drifting psychonautas.